Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ES Audio. You're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis. And I'm Nancy Durrant. And this is what's coming up on this week's show. We'll be reviewing the Bristol Old Vic production of Dr. Samuelweiss at the Harold Pinter Theatre. That's written by Stephen Brown, directed by Tom Morris, and stars someone you may have heard of, Mark Rylance. Plus, we discuss Grenfell in the words of survivors. It's a verbatim play and it's created from interviews with the residents at the heart of the Grenfell Tower fire. I never saw it as a deprived area. I just saw it as a council estate in the middle of Notting Hill. I was, I was always really proud. I'd say, I live in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Since the fire, my viewpoints on the fact that it's the royal borough has changed. Written by Gillian Slovo, it stars Pearl Mackey and is on at the National Theatre. And this week's guests are Charlie Stemp and Tom Eden, stars of Crazy For You, which is wowing crowds at the Gillian Lynn Theatre. Every night we're like, this could go wrong. This could so easily go wrong. We have a moment on stage where the girls throw this uh, golden nugget from plate to plate. And then as soon as the plate to plate finishes, and sometimes it does, it falls and it goes wrong. But immediately you then have to go on to the next thing because on the other side of the stage, you have two boys who are doing tumble tracks, which can easily go wrong again. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. So, um, well, the, the sad news this week, really, the news of the death of Abdul Shaikh of yeah. Tara Theatre, the director and uh, co-CEO, I believe, of uh, the UK's oldest uh, global majority-led theatre company at the age of just 39. I know, so young. Really young, really sad. There's been a huge outpouring of, of um, grief and regret on social media for him. He was obviously, you know, extremely well-respected, but extremely well-loved in yeah, the industry Yeah, exactly. Well. I think it's true. I mean, I, Tara looked at the world through a sort of South Asian lens, champion a lot of South Asian voices and was clearly doing amazing work. I didn't know him personally, but the the tributes are, you know, it's clear he was highly respected, as you say, doing great work. But what's coming across is also that he was a really caring soul, which yes. I think is probably the most important thing. Absolutely. At the end of the day. Yes, yeah. And and there's not quite enough of that in the theatre world. <laughs> I mean, you know, particularly <laughs> amongst the ranks of artistic directors. Yeah, so uh, so he obviously is very sadly missed. I'd never met him either, but I remember very strongly his uh, production of Silence at the Dollar, yes. co-production with with Tara, which was uh, told stories of of partition, particularly mm. of those who'd come to the UK following partition from India or Pakistan. Yeah, a terrible, terrible shame. Yeah, and uh, you know he had lots of ambition, I think, as well to sort of work with the South Asian diaspora and elsewhere in the country, in the north and the Midlands, you know, Manchester, Leicester, Coventry, Derby. So yeah, I think it's it's a, that's really sad, and obviously 
really awful for his family. I yes. think it was not expected. So yep, our condolences tragic. for that. Yes, indeed. Um, the big production news this week mm. is Spirited Away, the yes. adaptation of the Hayao Miyazaki film coming to the Colosseum in the original Japanese production. I know, quite, by... quite an, a, a little leap from <laughs> uh, my neighbour Totoro, isn't it? Yes, it's it like, is right, do you like this one? See if you can here's, do it in the original. An, yes, exactly. Here's another one. This is sort of fascinating, I think. This was directed by John Caird. He created it in Tokyo in 2022. Um, it's ages since we've seen a John Caird production in London, really. It's about five to seven years. I uh, don't I don't really know his work, I don't he's, think. Well, he will, because he directed Les Mis, and he, he's, oh. he, um, or co-directed Les Mis, I believe, with, with Trevor Nunn. Right. He was for a long time. He and Trevor Nunn were this amazing partnership. He's an honorary associate artist of the Royal Shakespeare Company. He did a lot at the National Theatre in the 90s. His fourth wife is Japanese, so a lot of his work has been in Japan and weirdly Stockholm, where he's also a resident director at one of the leading theatres there, uh, and on, on in Canada or on Broadway. So we have, you know, he, he used to be a really, really big presence on the London stage, and we right. haven't seen his work here for quite some time. It'll be fascinating to see how this goes down, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it'll have surtitles, you know, don't worry, guys. Like, yeah, you're not going to yeah, just yeah. have to watch the whole thing and guess what's happening. But this isn't a sort of one-off. This isn't your classic sort of German Peter Stein production playing Three Nights at the Barbican. This is a full sort of 12 or so week run. I, I know, and, and, the, and the Colosseum is a bloody big theatre as enormous, well. It's like, yes. what, 1,200, something like that? Is yeah. it even more? I don't know. It might know. be even more. I think there's only four theatres that are near the sort of two 2000 mark and I think right. the Colosseum might be one of those yeah it's massive I used to know all this stuff when I used to write the evening yeah. the theatre guide I used to be able to reel off you know theatre sizes the way some of my contemporaries can do football crowd <laughs> figures <laughs> <laughs> which outs me yet again as the nerd that I am yeah. I think but um, <laughs> but yeah I mean it, it is huge and I suppose it, it's testament to the sort of cult popularity of Miyazaki's Massively, yeah. work that, that, so. uh, that they think that this can, can fill the place but also I think to the openness in London to international work these yeah. days, you know, compared to say 20, 30 years ago, there's much more porousness to mm. work in foreign languages or in different styles coming here, I think. Yeah, and it's thrilling, you know, after people moaning, um, David Hare being one about the fact that it's only musicals that are allowed into the West End anymore. I mean, it's like, well, not really. I mean, I realise this is based on a film, but and I feel like the studio is kind of doing a bit of a Barbie, a bit, a bit of a Mattel, <laughs> you know, they're yeah. like, right, but with theatre instead of film. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really heartening that something like that should be coming into such a big theatre. I mean, it's a big risk, but... After um, My Neighbour Totoro, I think everyone's pretty sure that the fans are going to come out in force. I've just been past the note saying that the Coliseum has 2,359 seats. Flipping heck. the largest theatre in London's West End. Is it really? Bigger than the Palladium? I did not know that. If any, uh, yes indeed, if any uh, if any uh, listeners want to tweet in about what they think of the other three big ones, I think <laughs> the Dominion is certainly one of the other of the other, right. of the other bigger ones, but anyway, there we go. But we were talking, we were discussing as well, the other thing that in August that always dominates the um, theatre landscape is of course the Edinburgh Festival. Indeed. Dominates it like some great enormous blob. I mean, the Fringe has got, you know, God knows how many things now, how many shows, theatre shows and comedy. Um, And actually, if you're thinking of heading up, uh, we've got a great piece online by Tim Bano and Bruce Dessau picking out some of the theatre and comedy highlights. We'll um, put a link to that in the show notes. Um, It is quite a weird moment for the Fringe. I mean, I say that, but I think I said it last year as well (laughs) and possibly the year before that. But there was a report with uh, some of the biggest venue operators kind of 
shouting a bit about the fact that they think it's at a tipping point. And I think that is largely down to the sort of proposed crackdown on people letting out their homes as temporary accommodation. Yeah. Uh, and they think that's going to that's going to be a nightmare because no one's going to be able to stay. But no one can stay anyway because it's too expensive. Yeah. So I don't really know like what difference it actually makes. But you sort of feel that the the you know the problems that the French particularly is having now were discernible 20, 30 oh, years yeah, ago. Yeah, um, maybe. When I used to go regularly to Edinburgh every year, the whole point of the fringe was that it was sort of unregulated. You know, there's no yeah. quality control. Anyone can go there as long as they can find the money. Therefore, you know, there's there's a premium set on venue hire and on accommodation during those three weeks. The bigger it got, the more expensive it got. Tiddly pom, tiddly pom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's just these these problems have been in its DNA really for mm. for a very long time. I'm interested to know how it's going to affect the theatre landscape anyway. Yes. Yeah. Right, should we get into our first review? Sure, this is uh, Dr Semmelweis at the Harold Pinter Theatre. Nick, what did you think? I like this, uh, not unreservedly. This is the play about the uh, medical doctor in Vienna in the 19th century who made the shocking discovery that washing your hands between treating patients stopped people dying, particularly women in a maternity ward, for which he was vilified and cast out by the medical establishment of the time. It was apparently the original idea of Mark Rylance that he should write this play and and play the part. I imagine it's, because he listened to the same podcast that I did, which ah, is why I knew about Dr. Silverworth. Ah, what podcast is that? <laughs> it's on Radio Lab. It's okay. a really, really interesting podcast. Okay. It's rather better than the play, right. in my opinion. Oh, okay, we, we, will, we, will get, we will get to our disagreements <laughs> over the play in a moment. Um, it's, it's predominantly written by Stephen Brown with Mark Rylance, it said, but he's obviously had input to the script. Yeah, it's directed by Tom Morris um, in an interesting production, which also, also features a number of dancers yeah. who play the expectant mother and sort of give physical expression to the themes of fear, death, the joy of giving birth as well. Mm. I found this very inventive. Um, as I say, I didn't think it was it was perfect. I think mm. it's it's rather sprawling and a, and a little bit ungoverned and doesn't really know how to end. Uh, but what did you think? How did you find it? This one really pissed me off. <laughs> I mean, it is a great story. You know, the guy who worked out bacteria before we knew what bacteria was you know mm. he was actually interestingly almost exactly contemporaneous with Florence Nightingale who was also a great proponent of hygiene as I said I first heard about it and I think it must have been 2020 on this Radio Lab podcast uh, which was you know sort of during the pandemic so it was very very interesting you know they're doing this thing about hand washing um, and Semmelweis is a fascinating figure I mean he's not just you know the guy who found um, who found out about hand washing but he also was very, very troubled and ended really quite badly. And there is a lot to pack in if you want mm. to tell his story. And one of the problems with this is that they have tried to tell his entire story and it is completely overstuffed, I think. Right, yes. Completely. I mean, I don't mind a long play when it's good, but this felt like the longest two and a half hours I've spent in the theatre in quite a long time. <laughs> right. But the first half... I was kind of enjoying. Mm -hmm. My friend was liking it more, but I was feeling a bit like, mm, I'm not, you know, okay, sure, interesting, but whatever. But the second half, I just, my God, I, yeah, it really, it really got to me. I liked having the women, the musicians on the stage. I think yes. all the musicians were women. Yes, because there's an all-female yeah, quartet. Exactly, yes, which is, you well. know, it's great. And that was lovely. And the choreography with the female dancers and one male dancer, these women representing these women who risked their lives, basically, by giving birth in this hospital, which... 
uh, one of the key things that you learn at the beginning is that there's a midwife's ward and a doctor's ward. Hmm. It is known among mothers in Vienna that you you are much less likely to die. You would rather not go yeah. into hospital if you knew you were going onto the doctor's exactly. ward. You would rather give birth on the streets than yeah, go into they're the doctor's like, ward. Yeah, I don't know. The dancers, I thought they were great up until... It suddenly it wasn't, and I felt like they would. Their presence was just sort of papering over cracks where the storyline was losing its mm, way. Yeah, they're also. I mean, they it's also play some meandering. of the female characters. Yeah, and, and there's a reason why dancers dance rather than act. Isn't we, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but you know, but they're not. They're also not. Those characters are not particularly well written. No, they're not. No, there aren't really apart from uh, the, the the head midwife character. Yes, the, and and a little bit Samwise's wife. You know, I just felt I felt like her character was totally incoherent. Yeah. She spends the whole of the first half going, how did I not know this mm. over and over again? Yeah. And then in the second half, suddenly she does a bit of narrating because I've got nowhere to go. And she's giving this nonsensical kind of pseudo poetic speech like she's at the Globe. Yeah. You know, because otherwise the bit at the end about voiceless women is so far beyond ironic. It's hilarious <laughs> Just because because yeah. no women have a voice yes. in this yeah. play, it's except true. for the midwife who nobody listens to. Yes. Yes. And who? Uh, well, I won't spoil that, that particular bit of it. Yeah. Um, no, exactly. But not not worth it to see one of our greatest actors back on stage again for the first time since he returned to Jerusalem after the pandemic. I don't think he was good enough. Uh, I really didn't. I thought horror. I felt like he was just doing a Mark Rylance with incredibly distracting hair. There is an element of shtick to this. I, I oh. there, there's a certain you know sort of shifty mumbling that Rylance does that yeah. uh, that it tends to be his sort of fallback position. Um, I still find him magnetic to watch on stage. I think uh, also there's an extra frisson to his performance in this. In that about a couple of weeks before it opened, he announced that he um, had taken a distilled garlic solution instead of a vaccine. <laughs> Initially, he did yeah. ultimately get the COVID vaccine. But I mean, the fact that he came out with this in a play celebrating the triumph of science over superstition <laughs> seemed to be yeah, a spectacular so own goal. Or, you know, certainly there, there's, a, there's a slightly morbid extra fascination watching it, knowing, yeah. knowing that about him now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? To be honest, the only people who I thought were even able to distinguish themselves um, because I thought that, you know, because they felt like, again, they tried to pack so much in that it made the script really bitty and messy. Mm. There was Jude Owusu, who yep. played one of Semmelweis's colleagues, uh, Jakob Kaletschka, yep. who I thought was really, really good, actually. He has a real sort of naturalism and warmth and charisma on stage, which worked, which shone, I thought. And also Alan Williams, who is a real you know veteran actor as their sort of, uh, their, their boss, Professor Klein, who is sort of seemingly avuncular, but is actually sort of totally immovable, self-preservatory and yes. arrogant. I remember the set particularly well, which is maybe not a great thing. There's that famous mm. damning indictment of, a, uh, of an American musical that the audience came out whistling the set. I mean, I suppose you're not really <laughs> supposed to come out of this play about great scientific achievement thinking, God, that was a nice set. But it's a, it's <laughs> it a lovely a nice sort of set. evocation of a, a, of, a, of a viewing gallery, the sort of thing you find around an operating theatre. Yeah, yeah. The play reminds us that the word autopsy means to see for yourself. Yes, which I thought was a wonderful fact that I didn't know. Yes, yeah. Really enjoyed yeah. learning that. And I think there's a lot there's a lot about seeing and perception in this in this play that I did quite enjoy. I don't know. It just I, I think it's a really interesting story and lots of people in the audience did clearly love it. I just I was genuinely bored and cross by the end. And so for me it just it's a better podcast than a play. Fair enough. Right, time for a quick ad break, I think. Coming up, I'm over at the Gillian Lynn Theatre with Charlie Stemp and Tom Eden to chat about Crazy For You and the theory that maybe tap dancing can save the world. <laughs> we'll be back after these. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Caitlin Fitzgerald, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I am in the bowels of the Gillian Lynn Theatre with Charlie Stemp and Tom Eden, the stars of Crazy For You. Welcome, chaps. Hello, thank you for having us. How nice to be here with you. Charlie, tell us a little bit about what the show is and what it's about. Okay, so uh, a gentleman called Bobby Child, who is a banker, who doesn't want to be a banker, though. He wants to be a dancer. It follows him hafting to foreclose on a theatre in Dead Rock, Nevada where once he gets there he realises this theatre is far too beautiful to uh, foreclose and instead decides to try and put on a show. Uh, He meets the wonderful Polly Baker, played by the even more wonderful Carly Anderson. He says to her, let's put on a show in this theatre. She then finds out he is the banker who's going to foreclose on the theatre and says, obviously that's a bad idea, you are tricking us. So he then decides to pretend to be Bella Zangler, who is a prominent producer and director which is your cue tom to pick up the narrative i think yes uh my character zangler um which throws a spanner in the works for bobby's plan also turns up at this town following the girl that he is in love with who is part of the follies the zangler follies yeah and so much hilarity ensues when two identical people are running around we get two hungarian uh, impresarios don't we, we get two price, hungarian price of one two hungarian accents as well which you we <laughs> <could> compare <laughs> yes indeed yes. um the show in a way it shares quite a lot of dna i thought with with 42nd street they're based on films from the 30s but they're sort of reworked and augmented and slightly changed you know in the case of um, crazy view in the 90s 42nd street i think in the yeah. 80s charlie one of the the big selling points of the show is the choreography mm. um susan stroman choreographed the original production Broadway she's directed and choreographed it this time round, isn't yeah. it tell us a little bit about you know the challenges and the joys of of, of the dancing in this show Stro is only called boss lady for okay. me I only call her boss lady she is the best she's incredible the way she kind of helped us from a choreography point of view was so incredible because she has not only done this before but it's also just from a maturity point of view the way she views how the dancing needs to affect the storyline. So the growth of my character, for example, we had so many conversations uh, at the start of of the rehearsal period where I would kind of say, oh, well, I want to try this because it makes it look more perfect and more crisp. And she said, but 
but then we have no growth. Yeah. So the character can't start being the most incredible dancer ever and everything needing to be perfect. And then suddenly towards the end, when you're more tired, you're probably not going to be as good. Yeah. So actually one of the hardest things, but also most enjoyable things for me as well, was to kind of actually have to take a little step back at the start of the show and do moves that aren't what I would do if I was trying to show off to the most I possibly could. Yeah. So that was really enjoyable. And then on top of that, I mean, the choreography that we do as as big group numbers, I think is probably one of the best bits in the show is these massive group numbers that we have. I've got rhythm, start that yeah. bass, um, can't be bothered now. They're just such wonderful songs. And Susan Stroman has this ability to kind of make what is quite simple moves look so incredible one of the comic highlights for me was the scene you guys have together which struck me as yes. inspired by the marx brothers for the listeners it's a scene where zangler himself and bobby disguised as, as zangler meet up both with a hangover well i'm more both, drunk both yeah, drunk, drunk. Yes. Hangover. yeah yeah hangover and drunk and proceed to sort of interact together without really registering that they're Yes. They are each other, as it were. Yeah. And it recalls, I'm trying to remember which Marx Brothers film it There's is. It's Duck Soup. It's Duck Soup, the mirror scene where there are three yeah. Grouchos. Your scene with the two Zanglers, how is that to play? Um, it's great fun. The last thing you want to happen in a long-running show is to feel like you can sit back or go on autopilot or do like a B show or whatever, because that's not what the audience deserves. But with that sort of routine... You cannot do that. Hmm. You have to be awake every single second. We're yeah. having to do these things at exactly the same time. And the better we get at it, the, 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 the more speed we can give it. So it's very gratifying every night to have a challenge, you know, to, to be on that tightrope. And the way Stroh choreographs dance and the way she choreographs comedy is the same. She requires a bullseye every two seconds. It has to hit the mark and then hit the mark and then hit the mark. And if it doesn't, it isn't crazy for you. Charlie, is this a different order of, of sort of physical challenge to, say, Half Sixpence or Mary Poppins, which you've done? It, it certainly feels... I mean, I am, hopefully, well, I say I'm older, not more mature, but... It I say you're less mature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, it's more mature, the character is more mature. What I kind of have to give is definitely uh, different where I have to have a lot more control on stage. I think with Sixpence it was so great because I played this youthful kind of ditzy guy who doesn't really know what he's doing and kind of stumbles all over the place so if i made a mistake i could really lean into that yeah whereas with this one and this character and with with stroh's direction as well as kind of tom said there are so many moments where you're holding the ball in the air whilst also turning and spinning and probably having to juggle those balls at the same time and there are so many of those moments that when the physicality doesn't work you hear it from the audience hmm. and immediately but you don't have time to stop yeah. You have to go straight on to the next thing. Yeah. So whether it be, I don't know, one of the hundred things we do, which every night we're like, this could go wrong. This could yeah. so easily go wrong. We have a moment on stage where the girls throw this uh, golden nugget from, from plate to plate. Yes. And then as soon as the plate to plate finishes, and sometimes it does, it falls and it goes wrong, but immediately you then have to go on to the next thing because on the other side of the stage, you have two boys are doing tumble tracks, which can easily go wrong again. You're constantly kind of waiting to try and be good enough 
for the choreography and the shows. You yeah. never have time to stop or rest. Yeah. So that, from a physical point of view, is completely different. The physical side of it is, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Right. Hands down. Right. Hands down. Tom, recently you've done a lot of work with the Jamie Lloyd Company. We were yeah. just talking before we started recording about Cyrano de Bergerac, one of the most extraordinary shows of recent years. Is it a different order of experience, creating a character part in a, in a musical? Well, it's a sort of yes and no answer, in that uh, it's a completely different style. And... Uh, particularly the way the experience of, of Cyrano, the way that Jamie used sound and microphones in that. It was almost the kind of acting that you could imagine doing on camera, that you could really draw it back and, and bring the audience to you. Whereas this very much feels like we're going out to them. Yes. It all has to be rooted in truth. I have to contractually say that. Um, <laughs> but there is just something, and I remember this on One Man, Two Governors as well, there is something about comedy where you do, it does have to come from character. It does have to come from truth. Otherwise, it just won't be funny. You'll look like someone who's showing off. But at the same time, you do have to have another eye on the technical delivery of just going, if I look at the wrong gradient, it won't be as funny as if I look here. Or if I hold it for this amount of time, the laugh will be delivered more satisfactorily than if I do this. So you do have to be in this kind of split yes. hemispheral kind of way of going, I am in the organic experience of this character and delivering the scene, but I am also aware of where this is landing, where that has to be pitched. Yeah. And I think with something like Cyrano and other plays, you can kind of go lose yourself is totally the wrong thing because you have to be in control but you you can be a slightly more immersive you don't have to have quite such a technical um as it were an invisible hand on the steering wheel yes i see because there's an immediate payback this is the thing with, that's so nice about doing a big comedy part we've had wonderful audiences in particular this week and all the whole run but these this week they've been great great audiences and I was saying to someone else in the cast, oh, it's so much fun doing comedy. Because mm. if you get it right, they will tell you immediately. <laughs> yes, indeed, and you're like, yes. great, fantastic. And if you don't, you go, oh, okay, that didn't land, but I've got another chance coming in, in yeah. 15 seconds. And it's, it's automatic gratification or automatic... They'll tell you if you're yes. doing it right or not. Well, I will tell my wife Anne because she and two friends were in last night to see oh, it. So, Anne uh, so was the, great. I could feel her <laughs> you, love and you support. You could single out her laugh, I yes. think, from the, from the stalls. I yes. thought I could yeah. hear Anne. Yeah. One of the surprising things is how well the show sits in the space. I mean, the, the uh, it's lovely as well that it's in the first West End theatre to be named after a choreographer somehow. It and seems, the first to be named after a woman. The first to be named after a woman, yes, indeed. So, it's as we said, it's the Gillian Lynn Theatre, which was formerly the New London until Andrew Lloyd Webber renamed it. He rebuilt it for Cinderella. Um, it's now had this sort of shifting, um, well, it's had a number of shows come in most recently, well, Lehman Trilogy, one of the more recent ones. Um, but Crazy View, even though it is this sort of 30s bubbly extravaganza, seems to sit in this 1970s very open theatre surprisingly well. Well, if my reading was right, and someone would check, Fred Astaire has performed at this theatre. No way. When it was the Winter Garden, ah. I believe in the 20s or 30s, obviously long before Lloyd Webber got his mm. hands on it in the yeah. 70s. Yes. So here we are in the thrust. We're in the thrust of three... Uh, th no, it's seven seats where the thrust is. So that basically means that the depth of the thrust out into the audience is seven rows deep 
of yeah. seats yeah. from the sides. And that is a perfect amount for us. It's absolutely perfect because it means that you don't have to move your head placements, but it does mean that from a performance aspect of the dancing and of the comedy, you just get so much more fun to play with. And especially yeah. like, I know that Tom, you've been doing this wonderful thing recently where <laughs> he's already calling Gold Gone What They've Done. When we, just before we start What Causes That, yeah. where you kind of pitch one side of the audience off to the other to be like, well, they're being louder than you. So right. kind of, yes. you need to kind of bring it out. Nice. Your face. <laughs> Susan Stroman is listening to this. I'm sure you would, you would give it your seal of approval. <laughs> it's brilliant. Terrific. Well, Charlie Stemp, Tom Eden, thank you so much for joining us on the Evening Sound of Theatre podcast. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was Charlie Stemp and Tom Eden speaking to me from the Julian Lynn Theatre. Coming up right after this short break, we'll be reviewing Grenfell in the words of survivors at the National Theatre. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colours to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Lenny Henry and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Right, for the second review, this is Grenfell in the words of survivors. This is a major project from the National Theatre in collaboration with the North Kensington communities affected by the Grenfell fire of 2017. I had the day off from work. I took my son to school and his friend mum was with me. And uh, we saw quite a few people from the tower. And when I say that, quite a few people who lost their life on, actually on that day. This is a seriously sobering, necessary show, I would argue. Yeah, definitely. I saw it last night, actually, and it's, um, you know, it's three hours long and it feels long, but it doesn't feel bad long, if you see what I mean. It's yeah. kind of like it's long because it's hard. It's a hard subject, especially the second half. Um, but it, it's, it is really, I think it's extremely well done. I remember when I, I wrote about it, I said that this demands empathy, not sympathy, mm. uh, which I think is an important shift in the way Grenville has been talked about and the way it's sort of enshrined in our in our memories that there's a there's a lot of necessary focus of course on the 72 people who died in the fire and there is an equal rage and focus on the many 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 culpable parties that contributed Mm. to the fire taking place what i think this does is tells you what it's like to live through it and survive it and have that survivor's guilt it tells you what it feels like to stumble down a staircase full of smoke and mm. darkness over bodies of your neighbours. With your children. With your children. With firefighters stumbling past you, going up, uh, unable to tell which floor they're on because the floors have been renumbered. It's, it's just, it's, it's extraordinary, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's, There's always a worry, isn't there, about like making a drama out of a crisis? Yes. Um, and, the, you know, this involved, like you say, 72 deaths hundreds of lives destroyed, a heart ripped out of a community, which, which actually is something I think, again, that, that the play shows, don't you think? It yeah. sort of really, really drums home in a really, uh, in, a, in a very moving way, like how much of a community it was in a way yeah. that most Londoners actually, or many people who live in London don't 
don't have or appreciate or because you know we don't talk to our neighbors that much or what have you but but it, and it was only six years ago mm-hmm. and I think that danger you know of sort of riding roughshod over something like that is really exemplified in the response to the forthcoming BBC adaptation uh, which survivors and um, bereaved members of the community have been really upset by um, but this which sort of does what it says on the tin it's written in the words of the survivors from testimony you know from interviews with their express consent and their collaboration and then occasional sort of verbatim stuff from the inquiries i think this walks that line between doing most of what it needs to do as a piece of theater most of uh, and remaining completely respectful of the people who've been left behind and went through it. It's a yeah. very, very hard line to tread. And I think I think they've done about as well as you possibly could. I agree. Yes. Yeah. This yes. Is, this has been brilliantly knitted together by Gillian Slovo, the writer. Yes. And there's something about that kind of low-key, normal, non-dramatized way that it's described by normal people who went through it. Like yeah. recalling, as you say, the fear of their children and then sort of like the weird things that pop into your head. You know, there's there's a moment when someone's in their flat And they start running the bath, not to have a bath, but just, I think, to kind of try and maybe wet some towels, something like that. And then she worries about flooding her downstairs neighbour. And it's like, it's quite possible his flat is on fire. In fact, it's really quite likely. But there's something so chilling about hearing it as if you might hear it in a pub or over tea that really, really struck me. Yes, I agree. Uh, one of the things I thought was great was this gave, this gave so much context, not only about the fact that, as you say, it was a community, which can sometimes, I, I think, very occasionally, maybe that feels slightly over-egged at the beginning about how everyone got on really, really happily and different races and ages mm-hmm. together and everything. But what I thought was really great was that it sort of pointed out that lots of uh, the families who lived there were second or third generation residents of Kensington and yeah. Chelsea, unlike the blow-ins who bought the massively expensive houses, including our former prime minister, a few streets away. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. David Cameron was not born in London. He's a, you know, he's an economic migrant to the capital. <laughs> but um, you know, so I, I thought it was it was really important about that. It's shocking and it's it's enraging this yeah. show um, completely and. None of us get away lightly. Um, I'm not giving too much away if I say there are some interviews on screen with the actual residents mm-hmm. afterwards, which is a slightly strange thing when you've seen actors playing them. You know, it slightly sort of calls into question the reason for turning it into a play if, if you know, the, if the, the actual testimonies are so strong. Just thinking about the the interviews that you see at the end, in the very sort of good and laudable effort to be respectful yes. of the victims and their families, you do end up losing some of the dramatic effect of a theatre piece, but you don't really lose the impact because no. the story speaks for itself. What was done by sort of greedy, inhumane men, for the most part, at least that's you know the people that you see in, in the inquiries, short inquiry scenes, uh, that for the most part speaks for itself really mm, and yeah. so you don't you know for me what happened you know last night it it was very odd you know you know when you're grieving yeah. and you go out into the world and you can't believe things are normal mm. i mean obviously it's not exactly like that but you know it has echoes of that feeling really is what is what struck yeah. me it was very strange walking from the theater to kind of waterloo east with everything going on and all the commuters and all the kind of drunk people and all of that stuff going about their business and i found myself sort of not thinking exactly, but feeling like, don't you know what's happened? Yeah. You know, it was really deeply shocking mm. in that way. Not yeah. in a kind of <gasps> way, but just in a core way. And you're just like, how could this, how could this happen? But also 
not just how could this happen, but how could we know very clearly that this has happened now that we've had now three plays on the on the subject, the mm. two inquiry plays yeah. and this one, and yet nothing has been done. Yeah. Like nobody has been brought to account properly. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a really, it was completely full yeah. when I went, um, which was great. And I hope that it's got that kind of numbers all the way through the run because I do think it's really important. Yeah, there's um, always a there's always a slight sort of existential question about these things uh, in terms of how much impact can a play for a relatively short run in a relatively small theatre about such, you know, how much impact can it have? And mm. I remember talking to Nicholas Kent about this, who's a sort of pioneer of verbatim theatre, and he was the, the man who co-created the two verbatim plays about the inquiry mm. into Grenfell. I was sort of playing devil's advocate with him, and he sort of responded saying, these things do have an echo. You know, they do have a wider resonance, and they keep the thing alive. You know, yeah. they, they keep the stories alive, and they, and they you know, they, they make sure that the the words of, of the people involved are, are out there. You know, you can't make art on the basis that it might make a difference only on no. the basis that it might make a difference and, and what we do with it I think is we or artists they make sense of the world and yeah. it does that as well I mean it helps you know I think this I don't know because I haven't asked any of the you know the bereaved families or, or the survivors of course but I imagine that this has been in some way an experience which allows them to you know process up to a point what happened to them and yeah. it helps communities and it helps audiences to and just to understand as well how things work yeah and that i think can only be a good thing uh that's on until not very long actually just august the 26th but um if you can get in i think it's really really worthwhile here here That's it for this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Thanks to our guests this week, Charlie Stemp and Tom Eden, And thanks, as always, to our producer, Rachel Abbott. You can find all our interviews with the likes of Sir Lenny Henry, Millie Alcock, Tim Minchin and many more down below. Plus, you can find all our latest reviews straight from Press Night at standard.co.uk. That's also linked below. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating. We'll see you next week. <laughs>